Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We are a Bible-based church based out of Peterborough, Ontario, and together we are on a mission to reach people who are far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. In today's podcast, we have Tracy Ann Van Brink joining us, and she's delivering a message entitled, What the Church Stands For. And she brings some very valid points, and um, I think you'll really get a lot out of what she has to offer in this message. So with that, let's turn it over to Tracy Ann. Good morning. I've been thinking about the church and the impact of what it means to be church in the world. Specifically, I've been thinking about how our non-believing friends and neighbors might view the church, and then how they might think about God with the church as the lens through which they see him. Recently, the church has been brought forward into the minds of Canadians in the context of our residential school tragedy. Sometimes, tragedies of this magnitude can seem too big to know how to help or to respond. I find it helps to scale down my view to focus on where I live, who my neighbours are, and how I might be called to live out my faith right in front of me. When I do that, a question lingers for me. Do people in my world know what the church stands for? Or do people in my world know more about what the church stands against? And if I'm going to ask that question, it helps me to ask it in the context of my life, in the context of my family. You're invited to do the same. So let me give an example. My daughter Hannah attends University in Fredericton, New Brunswick. She's met a lot of great people there, many of whom are not Christians. And there's one person in particular who stands out for me in my daughter's stories that come home. Hannah tells of a field hockey teammate who is fearful of Christians. Because this teammate assumes that because of her lifestyle, if she were to be dark in the door of a church, she would be condemned or kicked out. In fact, she's apparently shocked that Hannah, who is a Christian, even enjoys her company. This young woman assumes that she will be judged and find no mercy by those who follow Christ and call themselves Christians. And it's made me wonder, when our neighbors and friends look at the church, made up of people like you and me, what do they see? How do they envision the God we worship when looking at the church? If you're new to the faith, or just checking it out, or if you've been in the faith for a while, I trust the scriptures we're about to look at today can reveal to all of us something more about God, no matter where we are on the journey of faith. Maybe the scriptures today will confirm what we already know. Maybe it will be a corrective lens, so that we can see more clearly who God really is. The passage for today, I think, encapsulates the gospel, the good news, It pulls together what we can be tempted to pull apart, and it gives us a vision of what it means to be a Christian. The text for today is Matthew 9, verse 9 to 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
So let's have a closer look at each of these verses and dig a little bit deeper. Verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he had just healed a paralyzed man. He saw a man named Matthew. In the other Gospels, uh, his name mentioned is Levi. And he was sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. I think that's a pretty remarkable thing. Jesus calls and Matthew follows. We don't know if Jesus explained more to Matthew about what it meant to be his disciple. But the point of this text is that Jesus' words were personal and had divine power. And so Matthew's calling is both divine and personal. Jesus, God as man, calls Matthew personally. It's a little bit like getting a telephone call from a party host inviting you personally to their party instead of a general invite on social media for whoever wants to come. Jesus is personal. Now verse 10, well, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him or reclined with him and his disciples. When the same story is told in the book of Luke, chapters 5, verse 29, it says that Matthew made a great feast in his house and invited like a crazy amount of people to attend. So Matthew threw a lavish party with Jesus as the main attraction. His money originally taken for personal gain was now being used as a love gift. Now, verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. Elsewhere it says the Pharisees grumbled. Why does the teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, notice the contrast with the lavish love gift by Matthew and the grumbling Pharisees. In the midst of lavish love, the Pharisees are finding fault. Now, verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy, or I think it's better translated the strong, that is, those who already know that it's God who gives them strength. It's not those people who need a doctor, but the sick. And I think a really great translation is those who are seriously afflicted, those who are in a really bad state and need a miracle. And then in verse 13, it says, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, there's more on that verse in a bit, but let's look at the cast of characters in this scene. First of all, we have Matthew. He's played on both sides of the street. He was a Jew employed by the Romans to tax his own people, and like most tax collectors, he very likely siphoned off a cut for himself. He even had two names. Levi is his Jewish name, Matthew is his foreign name. Now Matthew writes himself into the story by identifying himself without excuse. He was a tax collector, a reviled and despised person in the Jewish mindset, and Jesus called Matthew to follow him. Matthew then uses the wealth he has and throws a massive party, a lavish banquet. Now what about the sinners? Who are these people? What kind of a person gets the title sinner? These are the blatant, obvious, no disputing it, one look at them, you're kind of disgusted people. These are the people who know they live on the margins of society. And then we've got the disciples. These are people who have already decided to follow Jesus and are now known as his disciples or followers. Now we have the Pharisees. The Pharisees took purity laws very seriously to preserve and protect the Jewish people from defiling themselves. Now without going into too much detail, the Pharisees were a group of people at the time of Jesus that had some strong ideas about how to interpret scripture, how to live a godly life, how to live as people distinct from the pagan culture around them. I think we can see parallels in our life as Christians today. 
We have so many different denominations or churches, all with slightly different angles of vision on ways of living out the faith or engaging in worship. The Pharisees were devout, sincere people who wanted to do the right thing. Now these Pharisees come on the scene, grumbling to the disciples about their teacher associating with these sinners, because in their opinion, he should be taking his disciples out of harm's way and teaching them how to be separate. In their opinion, Jesus should be teaching them the right way to live, as separate from society. And then we've got Jesus, reclining at the table and sharing a meal with despised people. He's on par, on the same level as them, as if these sinners were no threat to him, or his status, or his person, or his relationship to his father. He was God as man in their midst, and not threatened by their life or their lifestyle choices. He didn't separate himself. He joined them. Now, I believe this story sums up the gospel, and I want to focus on three points to illustrate it. First, being a Christian is not merely about believing certain truths or doctrines. Of course, there are things we believe, and we ought to believe as Christians. I call them little T-truths, or else our faith is mere superstition. But you don't have to have all your facts straight or your truth straight to be a Christian. You don't have to have your life all in order or follow some kind of moral code perfectly to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a Christ follower, a capital T truth Christ follower, because truth is a person, not an idea. But we cannot follow Christ unless he calls us first, like he did for Matthew. So here's a question you might ask. How do I know if Christ is calling me? Christ desires that everyone know him. You can read that in 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. Christ came to save the lost, the afflicted. That's everyone. The question isn't if Christ is calling you. The question is whether or not you're willing to say yes to his call. You see, we were made to hear God. This is what sets us apart from the animals. We are created on the same day as the animals. The only thing that sets us apart from them is that God chose to speak to us, rendering us human, made in his image, and able to respond. God speaks, and we have the choice whether or not to respond. God speaks, God calls us, and faith is conceived through hearing. So, Matthew is called by Jesus. He said yes and chose to respond by following Jesus. Now, it's a mystery, isn't it? How Jesus calls all of us, but only some of us respond. How is it that ten people can hear the same sermon, and only one or two people receive Christ's invitation to follow him? I thank God for our free will to say yes to him. Otherwise, we wouldn't freely love him, would we? Even so, coming to faith is a miracle. It begins with God's call, invites our response, and then grows in ways we can't explain, but we know to be true. So we pray earnestly that God creates the miracle of faith in everyone we love. We cannot make faith happen in ourselves or our neighbor, but we can live our life as a witness to what God has done in us. We can make faith so attractive by our lavish love that others want to know more. Now this is what Matthew did. He recorded for all time in scripture that he was a tax collector a despised person by human standards, and he recognized his need for Jesus when Jesus called him. 
And then he lived his life out of gratitude for the relationship Jesus began with him. And his testimony, we now have as part of our Holy Scriptures. His witness to Jesus calling him and his following. And then he threw a party to celebrate. Second, Jesus welcomes you as you are, and he defends you. When the disciples were accused by the Pharisees for not following religious protocol, Jesus defends the disciples and the unclean people reclining with him by saying that he has come to heal the afflicted. He didn't come to separate. He came to bring together, to heal that which is broken. Jesus is letting the Pharisees know that all these people are exactly where they should be, with him. Precisely because they are broken, precisely because they are not strong. Now, in our culture of self-sufficiency, it's easy to think that we're the cause of all we have. But none of us can make ourselves or will ourselves into a right relationship with God. On our own, we go in the opposite direction and flee God. Sometimes even we might look like we're busy uh, seeking Him out. Even that can be a running away from God if it's more looking the part than living the relationship. If we think we are strong on our own, we fool ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's from 1 John 1 verse 8. So it's only when God calls us and invites us and then makes a way for us that we can be truly in relationship with Him. So we can say yes to that relationship because Jesus made it possible. Christ defended the disciples and the others in the same way He defends you and me. He takes the first and final hit the cross, and we crowd behind him as he defends us to the Father. When God looks at you and me, he sees Christ. That's why we cling to Christ's faithfulness, not our own. That's why you can come as you are. Christ has already made a way for you to come. Third, Jesus Christ makes us right with God. He pulls together what we broke apart in sin. Jesus tells the Pharisees to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He tells them to essentially go and learn by experience what they already knew in their heads. They already had the scriptures committed to their memory. Jesus was quoting Hosea 6 verse 6 after all. But they needed to learn how to live those scriptures out in love. Now at one time this verse kind of struck me as odd. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I mean, didn't God institute the sacrificial system? Didn't God want people to be aware of how they missed the mark, how they lived under God's judgment and needed Him to save them? Why would Jesus say, I desire mercy, not sacrifice? And then I discovered that Hebrew logic uses this kind of word order to emphasize a contrast more than a negation. Of course, Jesus wasn't saying the sacrificial system was useless. He was a Jew. And he grew up going to synagogue, and that included all the Jewish sacrifices. But he was saying that the sacrificial system is based on mercy. So let me explain. The word mercy here means more than pity or compassion. It's loyalty to God's covenant. And God's covenant is an act of love, a reaching out, an extension of himself. It is Jesus, God incarnate, God as man. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus never corrects or rebukes, but it does mean that his judgment serves his mercy. 
Just like the sacrificial system, his judgment is for the sake of restoring us and always for the sake of our blessing. But perhaps we've pulled apart what belongs together, judgment and mercy with mercy in the foreground. In the news, in politics, in life lived with neighbors and friends, the church lately seems to be known more for what it's against than what it's for. Now, like my daughter's friend, there are people afraid of coming to church for fear of finding no mercy. I'm wondering if that might be because the church has mistakenly adopted the world's understanding of God as judge. The world sees God as a judge in a courtroom, someone who says, you're right, you're wrong, and then determines a punishment. But in ancient Israel, both men and women were also uh, elders and saviors, and they were called judges. We read about the Israelites crying out to the Lord when threatened by invasion, and the Lord raised up judges who saved them. People today might think of judges as people who condemn, but in ancient Israel, the primary function of a judge was to save. Jesus often spoke of himself as judge. And just like the ancient judges, Jesus came to encourage you when you feel threatened, to guide you when you're going off track, by recalling you to the claim and command of God, by recalling you to the promises of God. We've been given an ancient Israel kind of judge that has saved us from our condemnation on account of sin. This judge is our elder brother and savior, Jesus Christ. He will be our judge because precisely he is already our savior. That's why Jesus could recline with the tax collectors and the sinners, those condemned by society and those representing the church. He was not threatened because he came precisely to save them. All of them. Tax collector, sinner, disciple, and Pharisee. And his judgment on them is his mercy. Those who are healthy or strong, he said, have no sick need of a physician, rather, but those who are sickly afflicted. The judgment that they are sick has already been made. And that judgment is mercy because it's remedied by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Any correction he might give them, like go and sin no more, or go and learn what this means, is ultimately for their blessing. You see, this is what happens when we keep company with Jesus. We learn to love like he does, freely and without fear. All our priorities shift from self-preservation to lavish love. Like Matthew, we can take what we have, be who we are, and love ourselves and our neighbor extravagantly. We don't need to judge And we're not called to. We can put our trust in the judge and savior, Jesus, who came to save the lost. That's you, me, and our neighbor. So let me just conclude with a few thoughts, a way to sort of put this all into practice. If you hear Jesus inviting you to follow him today, you don't have to know all the details. He simply invites you to make a decision and say yes because he wants nothing more than to save you and pour his blessing out on you. I would like to invite all of us, young and mature in the faith, to read this passage again later. Take your time. Read it slowly. Read the text, and let the text read you by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. Which character or characters do you most resonate with? Do you find yourself resonating with Matthew? A man trying to have it both ways. A man trying to live on two sides of the street. A man found by Jesus calling him to follow. What might God be inviting you to bring to him in prayer? 
Do you resonate with the group of sinners? Someone whom society looks upon with distaste or even disgust. Maybe you feel like you live on the outside, looking in. What longings of your heart do you want to bring to Jesus in prayer? Maybe you find yourself resonating with the disciples, a follower of Christ, glad to be partnering with God and ready to throw a party. Or maybe you want to know more and you find yourself challenged to dig deeper into who Jesus is and where he's calling you to follow. What might you want to bring to him in prayer? Finally, you might resonate with the, with the uh, Pharisees the most. You've been in the faith for a while. You want to do the right thing. Maybe you feel you need to defend the gospel because it looks like the world's falling apart and the church is being scorned everywhere you look. Perhaps you've forgotten why you became a Christ follower in the first place. What might you want to bring to Jesus in prayer? As church... A body of Christ followers, we are called, invited, commanded by our loving Savior to go and learn what it means to offer the world a place of mercy, where we leave judgment to Jesus. Jesus, God as man who came to seek and save the lost. We are simply called to give witness to what Christ has done in us and lavishly love our neighbor by providing a church of refuge, a place of kindness and rest so that all may come freely and without fear. We can trust that when people, including ourselves, spend time with Jesus and truly follow him, we will all be transformed into his likeness, day by day, step by step, one decision at a time. Let's pray. Jesus, our Redeemer, Thank you for loving each one of us as we are. Thank you for calling each one of us to follow you without having to have it all together first. Thank you for making a way for us to join you with the Father in defending us. Help us to love like you. Forgive us, we pray, for those times we act of our fears and not out of our faith. Help us, Lord Jesus, to cling to your faithfulness and not our own. Protect us, we pray, from all that might afflict us, from within or from without, and lead us by your mercy into life, now and forevermore. Amen. Tracy Ann, thank you so much for that message, and thank you for listening. Um, Please make sure to follow us on all of our socials, and um, we hope to see you guys very soon. Have a great day.